0: Christian lives, and for that purpose, we gather together on a Sunday morning, and Lord, we open your word. We just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us wisdom and instruction, God, that you would be glorified through the lives that we present for your service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor. Neighbors, greetings. Neighbor. Neighbor. Good morning Jim, how are you? Good morning sir. good morning everybody today we are having our question and answer and communion we skipped a couple of months because of christmas and all but now we are back at it so we'll be going through a series i believe about eight questions today and that's pretty much all that i have so it's taken us about i think it's five services to go through these things Uh, A couple of other things. First of all, last week uh, we put the flyer in the bulletin and we asked for more food for our food pantry and our food pantry is pretty much full right now and so that's a blessing (laughs) answering the call. It's not that we don't need anything else. We could always use stuff as you're able but um, as far as the crisis, the crisis is over and actually God has no crises and then there was one more thing. Let's see, is happy birthday to you. To you. Happy birthday, dear Bertie! It's Bertie's birthday! Are right, you ready? Happy birthday to you. Happy birth Stand up to you. Happy birthday, dear Bertie. Happy birthday to you. Hey. And it's my birthday. No, it's not. (laughs) Uh, You can ask her that afterwards. I don't know if this is appropriate right now or if she cares to answer. What's that? 70 years old. old. (laughs) All right, let's pull this back, bring this back in control here. Go ahead and be seated, William. (laughs) They weren't clapping for you. (laughs) okay all right our first question of the day how do we put on the armor of God well the armor of God is spelled out in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 through to verse actually we'll go a little bit further but to verse 20 or so but finally my brethren be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and so What is the power of his might? He's going to go through that in a minute. But he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. So because of that, verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded yourself with, uh, girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you may be able to quench all the fiery darts in the wicked one, of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So, We are to stand as an army does when it takes a defensive position. We are to take, and the idea is to go forward and to go on the offensive. But the question here is, is how do we put on the armor of God? And it says here to take up, therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. So this is a decision that you need to make to do. Now, this is all about we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So it's not physical fights. Matter of fact, sometimes the church wastes so much time and the church becomes ineffective because we are wrestling against flesh and blood, the various divisions that can exist within a church. But we are to take up the whole armor of God. So I need to make a conscious decision in these things, in these various elements of what prepares me to stand, to be defensive as the devil makes his attacks, but also to go on the offensive. Now, there's a key portion to this section of scripture, and it's in verses 18 through 20, and this is how I believe. First of all, you have to be aware of the armor. So when my son, he signed up for the Marine Corps they tried to kill him the first few weeks and then finally they gave him a gun and when they gave him his gun they didn't just say here's a gun you know hope you do well that he became keenly aware of that gun and how it worked what it was able to do what was the proper care of that and they taught him and trained him in the usage of that weapon and so as far as spiritual for spiritual warfare. That's why we have Bible studies, because I guarantee you, every person in here, the attacks are coming. Are you prepared? Are you prepared for the attacks that are sure to come? If you're ill-prepared, you will be overrun if you're prepared, you will be able to stand, even move forward in the face of the opposition. And so, as far as the different elements of the armor of God, I need to be well aware of them, how they work, how they fit. We're not going to go into an in-depth study of this, but verse 14, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, understanding that the word of God is truth, Eve and Adam were ill-prepared in the garden because they rejected God's truth and went after the lies of the devil. Having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Your breastplate, it protects your vital organs." You can be shot in the arm, shot in the leg, shot in the perimeter, and survive that. But if you're shot in the vital organs, especially back in these days, you were probably going to die. And so, breastplate of righteousness. This is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that I have upon me. And again, we're speaking in spiritual terms, as I have the righteousness of Christ If I should go to be with the Lord today, I'll be just there with the Lord today because I'm not dependent upon my own righteousness. Our Lord's righteousness is strong protection. Our righteousness is to be left vulnerable. Verse 15, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. It speaks of your walk and it speaks of the beauty of those whose feet go to share the gospel. I had um, planters' fishitis not too long ago. I decided I was going to become a running star and so I just I'm of the mindset well if I'm gonna start running forget about all that preparation let's just go for it and do it well I did it and I hurt my foot and I could hardly walk and you find out how valuable walking is when you can't walk and here the idea is is just to move forward in the gospel so shod cover up your feet prepare your feet prepare your walk with the gospel verse 16 above all the shield of faith which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and the idea is as you start to now push forward the darts are going to intensify those spiritual attacks shield of faith now, faith isn't in myself is it in my abilities, but my faith is in God and what God is able to do. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So I have to make a conscious decision to take up those things. Now, how do I do that? Well, again, deciding to do it, understanding what they are, but ultimately, I think the most important part of this section of scripture is in verses 18 through 20 because it says, pray, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, and in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So You see the value and the necessity of prayer to be prepared for the day of spiritual battle here, and you even see the importance in Paul's heart. He's the one who penned the book of Ephesians, because verse 18, he's given instruction like he's been doing through the whole thing, but it's as if in between verse 18 and 19, he realized the importance of prayer, and he realized his desire for prayer. He understood the temptations that were there because he was a man who was vulnerable for temptations as well. He understood the fear of facing an enemy on the battlefield, even a man of great faith, but still he's saying, pray for me. So he's got one verse there that we should pray, but then two verses, pray for me. And I'm asking you, pray for me. Pray for all of those, the leadership that you see in the various ministries that are written in the bulletin and these things that are going on. Pray for the various leaders there because they're the ones who are most vulnerable to spiritual attack. If you're attacking an enemy and you're seeing that this division of that particular enemy isn't really doing anything, but this enemy over here is preparing to attack, that's where you're going to direct your forces to. The ones who aren't doing anything, they're not really going to, they're going to be overrun, but they're not going to really so much experience the spiritual attack. So it's the ones who are moving forward in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say, if I had to give one word answer to this question, how do we put on the armor of God? Pray, pray, be people of prayer. Jesus said, and when you pray, Matthew chapter six, and when you pray, he didn't say in if you pray, He didn't even say you should pray. He's not saying I command you to pray. He says, and when you pray, because there's just that divine expectation that God's people would pray. And it's just simply speaking to God. I remember coming out of the Catholic church. We had all of these um, formula prayers, whatever you want to call them, not even patterns, but definite prayers. And so I could say, I'm just, just, you know, blessed are the Lord these days, it's about to receive from the bounty of the Christ. So Lord, amen. You know, I could say it, and I don't have a clue what I was saying, but then all of a sudden I get saved and I'm sitting in a small group and these guys are praying and I'm gonna be expected to pray out loud. And I don't know how to do it. But then I realize they're just having a conversation with God. And that's all we're supposed to do is just to have a constant, pray without ceasing, a constant conversation with God and it's in that prayer that you will find yourself (laughs) pre-prayer prepared. prepared. (laughs) Get that out. Okay, question number, now we've been through all, you know, 42 of them now, so that's why I'll call this one not question two, but question 43. It's about discerning the voice of the Lord. Now keep in mind that People aren't going to be able to express themselves completely and totally when you hear the questions, but all of these questions are valid questions. Discerning the voice of the Lord, when you hear something in church telling you to do something and then hear something different telling you to do the first thing in a different way, what do you do? Well, whose voice do you hear? Whose voice will you obey? If you have a heart for the Lord and a desire for the Lord, it's the Lord's voice that you will hear. It's not that you're not going to hear, when I say voice, another urging, another sensing of direction. And, you know, we can put this, and we should put this in the spiritual realm, but really, it's not so much the voice of the devil that I worry about, it's the calling of my flesh that I'm most concerned about. And so, my kids we would pray for them my wife and myself and we would pray the devil and the cults and that they would be wise and all that but our biggest fear was their flesh because that's really man's biggest enemy and so really is this the calling of the lord or is this the fallacy of the flesh that is calling me contrary to god well when i obey that call what direction is it going to send me in is it going to send me in a biblical direction or is it gonna send me in a direction that is contrary to the scripture? That's how I make that evaluation. And so whatever things are biblical are the things, well, the direction that I need to go to. If I hear that, again, voice, it's not about hearing voices, it's about that urging. Is this the voice of the Lord that is urging me, that is encouraging me to go in this direction? or if this is somebody else now let's just say it's not a sin issue let's just say God is calling you to the mission field and so Lord you're calling me to the mission field how do I know that that is of you well probably not of the devil as God has called us to go forth and to make disciples that would be something that you could biblically back up Now, if he's calling you to the mission field of Ontario, which if you're living in Ontario, he is, but Ontario, I looked it up, it's not mentioned in the Bible. Well, he's called us to the mission field, and so there's certain determinations that I need to make. And so how do I make these determinations as far as what is of the Lord and not of the Lord? Well, again, first of all, I look in the scriptures. Second of all, I head in the direction, honestly, before the Lord, examining my heart in the matter and so, God, I believe you're calling me to Maui. But, Lord, that might be the flesh as well. Now, Maui, the people there, they need to hear the gospel. Here I am, Lord, send me. And God's saying, no, I'm calling you to Zimbabwe, not Maui. Oh, Lord, I don't really want to go to Zimbabwe. I want to go to Maui. And God saying, no, I'm calling you to Zimbabwe. But I, I just feel this, this great call to go to Maui and so now there's nothing wrong if god's calling you to go to maui it's not sin to go to maui if god's really calling you but you go on your trip to maui and there's just no open doors remember the apostle paul the apostle paul he had a call he thought he had a call he had a desire i should say to go to asia and he met that man from macedonia in a dream and what it was is, was god calling him to go into the area of southern europe into the area of greece Now, he had good intentions, and he was moving. He was headed north, and he was going to veer off to the right. But God says, no, I want you to go to the left. But the thing about it was, is Paul, what's the key here? Paul was going. He was moving. And because he was moving, he was directed. And so, since a call to Maui, which I don't, but if I did, I'd start moving. But I would need to be open to the leading of the Lord, because he's not calling this particular person that we're using this illustration, he's calling him to Zimbabwe. But God is going to achieve his will, and I need to be open to the leading of the Spirit that my flesh would not cloud the calling of God in my life. And again, you're sensing different things in your life and you're trying to discern if this is of the Lord or not of the Lord, is this of my flesh, is this even of the enemy, so on and so forth, run it through Philippians chapter 4 verses 8 through 9. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, and the things which you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. And so you'll have peace. Again, Paul, many others in the scriptures, these things given for our example as a pattern. Because again, Maui's, Zimbabwe, Ontario, they're not mentioned in the Bible, but God loves the people there and wants people to share the gospel there. And so, is this my flash? is this the spirit? What is this? I run it through the scriptures, I pray about it, and then I move in the direction that I believe that God is calling. But keep it in mind, bottom line, God is not going to call you to do anything contrary to what the Bible says is good and right in his sight. He's not going to call you to commit a sin. Who's that of? That's either going to be of your flesh, or that is going to be what is of the devil. Number 44, what is the biblical proof that the world is not billions of years old? The Bible does not seek to prove anything. The Bible gives truth statements. That's what the Bible does. And so you're not going to find biblical proof so much. You know, stay with me here because we'll go through this. But the Bible's not going to say, well, the earth is not billions of years old. The earth is not millions. It's not arguing with anybody. It's giving you, excuse me, truth statements. Now, part of the problem in truth. Now, if I told you that we are going to give everybody a free coffee today, coffee bar, Jeff, you're going to be really busy today. Everybody gets a free coffee, but one of those cups we used to, well, the toilet backed up and we had to bail out some of the water. And if we threw the cup away afterwards, we weren't going to have enough but don't worry about it. I rinse the cup out before I put it back. Now, I wouldn't have enough faith to go, and although the odds are against it, to think that I'm not going to get that soiled cup. The problem is there's just been a little bit of that, which is, well, it defiled the whole bunch. And so what happens when you add to the truth? It defiles the whole truth. Now, man has done so in a ways that have taken God's, and I'll again get into this in a minute, God's 6,000 years to millions and even billions of years. And matter of fact, the church has even bought into some of that. What we have done is we've entered in, let me turn there because I'm not sure, I think it's between verses two and three, but I don't really recall. Yes, um, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, verse 3, Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Well, some people in the church have wedged between verses 2 and 3 and filled that in with billions of years. It's called the gap theory. Well, if you're going to start making gaps in the Bible and you're going to start filling them with the intellect of mankind, you got a real problem. Because I can render the word of God to no effect by entering in what I believe is the truths of Mike or the truths of any man. And so, is the... How does the Bible go to prove that the earth is billions of years old, or if it is, or if it isn't? The Bible doesn't seek to prove anything. It offers these truth statements. And if you would go through, and there are people who have done this, I have not personally, actually I have done it. I did go through once and did the math as well. And the earth is give or take a hundred years, whatever it might be. It's 6,000 years old. Look at it this way. I I heard this many years ago. I don't recall where from, but if you do the math and follow the timelines that you'll see here, you'll see that Adam and Eve, again, were created with the world about 6,000 years ago. Now, what is six? Six, this isn't scripture. This isn't infallible, so you can't use it to prove scriptural truth but you can use it to back up because those people who do such things have gone through and they have attached certain biblical truths and realities to numbers. And so you have certain numbers that represent certain things, and it follows a pattern for the most part through the scriptures. You, we don't base anybody's salvation on that. We don't base the knowledge of God upon that. It just kind of seems like something that God has given us and just to kind of undergird our faith a bit, whatever it might be. But number six is looked at as the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. Six days are appointed for man to labor, and that was all part of the curse. And then you see the number 666. It's the ultimate number of the flesh. And so with 6,000 years from the point of creation, we have the year 2000. Now again, this is give or take, you know however many years because nobody knows the day when Christ is coming back or the end of the times but nonetheless 6000 years 6000 years here would represent the age of man then as we hit into the next head into the next 1000 years or the 7000th year period well 7 in the scriptures is the number of spiritual perfection or the sabbath Well, after 6,000 years of man's labor, we could now be at the very door of man's rest, the Sabbath, or what the Bible calls the millennial age. And so when's this happening? I don't know, because the Bible says we don't know. We're speaking in very rough terms. But again, just something for our consideration. What happens after that 7,000-year period? Well, we then enter into an 8,000-year period period not an 8,000 year period but the eighth 1,000 year period and eight represents it's the number of new beginnings and guess what the millennial age at the end of the millennial age what that ushers in revelation 21 1 now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away also there were no more seas. so there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth at that time does that prove anything no it doesn't because I could be wrong Jesus could hold off for another thousand years. That's very possible. But the Bible does state that from our period of time working backwards, that the earth, give or take again, is about 6,000 years old. And so man in his intellect, they have gone and they have done much damage. reading a book it's about a debate now they weren't they were contemporaries of one another but they never did debate one another but this author has taken the concepts of c.s lewis and the concepts of sigmund freud and used them as a debate that he has kind of fostered and so what he's done is he's taken their writings their teachings and their beliefs and used them as if they would come together how that would turn out it's very interesting now one of the things that Sigmund Freud said was that he was an atheist but he says the problem that I has is that science demands a god and that's the problem that the world has they keep trying to push god out of the equation and to do that as they as god gives man greater knowledge well, it used to be there's more thousands of years than six thousands of years they came up with. Then all of a sudden that had to go over to millions of years. And I don't even know what it is now, but it's into the billions of years that the earth has been around for everything to fit or try to make sense apart from God of all of creation. And so the Bible says, I'm not trying to prove anything. You think God is gonna get into an argument or a debate with mankind? That's not going to happen. God through the scriptures, has given us truth statements. And the magnitude of your faith is going to be according to your ability to receive of those things and believe of those things. So I just need to believe of these things? No, guess who also created your brain? God created your brain. And he's given us the direction for our brain or or for our thoughts. And so God does not mind. Come and check and see that these things are so. God wants you to 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 check out the truths of his word he wants to challenge you you're not challenging him but he wants to challenge you prove that these things are false men and women throughout the course of history who are a lot smarter than all of our intelligence pooled here have been devoting years of their lives to prove these things false and nobody ever has And so the next time somebody who you're sharing the word with and you're telling them that you believe the Bible and they say, well, the Bible's full of falsities and full of um, contradictions, ask them, because I'm sure they have gone through and found all of these things themselves, ask them to show you one. More than likely, what they're doing is just regurgitating something that they have heard before. And so if somebody challenges you in that manner, is all you need to say is, is to show me because that's what God says. God just simply says, show me, show me where I'm wrong, and you can spend many lifetimes trying to prove that God is wrong, and you're just going to be lost in your own foolishness. Number 45, where does Calvary Chapel stand when it comes to Calvinism? We are neither Calvinist nor are we Arminianist, Pastor Chuck who has been accused by those who are on one side of being on the other or those who are on that other side of being on the opposite side, said, as long as I'm right in the middle and they're throwing rocks from both directions at me, I'm in a good place. I don't know that he ever said this in a church service, but he did at pastor's conferences, and he would say, I am not Pentecostal, I am not Arminiast, and I am not a Calvinist. There's nothing wrong with that. If you are, that's fine. Go off and be with the Calvinists and the Arminiists and the Pentecostals. And he said, don't go away mad, just go away. <laughs> because what those people were, he's not even being rude, what those people were doing is they were causing divisions within the church. And again, it's the same thing. If you hear somebody at our church that says, well, you know, Pastor Mike teaches this, but you know what I believe? Well, if you have that attitude, well, come and tell Pastor Mike because if Pastor Mike's wrong, I'll stand up here at the church and tell you that that I was wrong. I don't have a problem with that. Why would I want to lead you in a false way? But it's usually people that want to bring you according to their ways of thinking. Now, if you would go into my office, you would see the library that I have in there. And the majority of the um, commentaries that I have there are written by people who were either either Calvinistic or Reformed. That's to that one side of the spectrum. There are a few that were written by Arminius. But what I'm looking for is the truths of the Bible. Now, the Arminius and the Calvinists will hold to what they believe are the truths of the Bible from their perspective. Now, if you look in our bulletin, what do we have in our bulletin? Our statement of faith neither of those are contrary to our statement of faith so i believe that you can be a christian and be a calvinist now there's extremes so i'm not going to the extremes right now you can be a christian and be a a reformed or calvinist or you can be a christian and go towards the arminian john wesley was towards the arminian slant um on the other side um spurgeon rc Sproul, john macarthur James Montgomery Boyce, and there's a few that are over on that that other side of the of the spectrum. But the question was asked about Calvinist. Calvinism is based upon the teachings of John Calvin, although they've gone to a point that they have gone past really what John Calvin believed. And it's what how they have digested those teachings and in general they came up with an acronym for the beliefs of calvinism which we'll go through it's called tulip tulip the first t is total depravity well i'd agree with total depravity man is totally depraved i don't know if i would go according to the degree that they have but first scriptural evidence for this is in john uh, chapter 3 many places but john chapter 3 verse 18 he who believes in him in jesus is not condemned but he who does not believe is condemned already because he does not believe in the only begotten son of god so that tells us that we are totally depraved from the womb Now, as we get into this, we'll see that they believe that man is totally depraved to such an extreme that he can never make a decision for Christ apart from God. Now, I'll believe that to the degree that, yes, the Bible needs to be, I'm sorry, the gospel needs to be presented to that person in order for him to make a decision for Christ. He needs to be filled with the Spirit. There's no doubt about that but i also believe that man or sorry god gives man the ability to make a decision as well second corinthians chapter 5 verse 11 knowing therefore the terror of the lord because we understand that mankind apart from a relationship with jesus christ is going to be judged and condemned that would be the terror of the lord what do we do it says we persuade men that word persuade means we present the gospel in a way that somebody is able to understand and come to a decision on. Now, there's also kind of this cyclical argument that, okay, yes, but only those who are called and God made will make that decision. And, you know, we can go off in a million miles with that, but, you know, sometimes we can overthink these because we know the terror of the Lord. If we know somebody's unsaved, share the gospel with them. That is plain and simple and then prayerfully that they will get right with the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that person called? Is that person elected? Don't worry about all of that, because you'll never know who's called. You'll never know who's elected other than those who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior but there's a whole city outside of our doors of people who are unsaved. Are they called or elected? I don't know, but it's our responsibility not to save them, but it's our responsibility to go out and to preach the word. So that's T, total depravity. Secondly is unconditional election. Unconditional election. That means either God chose you or he didn't. That God either chose you to go to heaven or and this is a little bit extreme because the Bible doesn't teach this, or he has called you to go to hell, and so they've kind of taken that out, and the people that I have talked to, uh, Reformed or Calvinist, unconditional election, yes, God has chosen those who are going to go to heaven, because the Bible says that, you know, it's true, God has chosen those who are going to go to heaven, but then they'll say, well, so that means he has chosen those who are going to go to hell, and they would say no, well, if he's chosen those who are going to heaven, then if he hasn't chosen those who are going to hell, then, and they don't have a choice in the matter, that means they were predestined for hell. And then the argument was, which wasn't really much of an argument, no, that, that I, I can't explain it to you, but no, he hasn't done that. Well, if God has given mankind a choice, well, then that makes perfect sense. Well, how do I explain? Because the Bible does say, Ephesians chapter one, verses four and five, that God has chosen mankind. Well, once again, how do I know who God has chosen? Well, those who are born again. We have a God who inhabits eternity. Matter of fact, God is outside of the constraints of time. Think about that for a while. That means God is in existence right now in the past and in the future. Now, if somebody is never gonna receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, they're gonna go to the grave, they're going to be condemned. Well, obviously that person wasn't chosen but those who would receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, it's those whom God has chosen. Matter of fact, I'm of the mindset that God has chosen all of mankind, so all of mankind needs to hear the gospel. Not all of mankind is going to receive the gospel. Many are called, but few are chosen. But as far as what we're concerned about, if we're just of the mindset, well, either that person God has called and he's gonna drag into heaven kicking and screaming whether he likes it or not, I know that's extreme, And this person, whether he wants to get in heaven or not, he can't because he hasn't been chosen. Then I'm just going to be a spectator because what difference does it make if I share the gospel or not? Because it's not going to change anything. But again, I don't see the Bible approaching unconditional election the way that the Calvinists would. TU, then we have L, is limited atonement. Well, that just makes sense. This I do not believe. Limited atonement, that means that Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't die for everybody. He didn't die for those who weren't chosen. He only died, limited atonement, he only died for those who are chosen. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches me, for God so loved the world. he he so loved the whole world, God loves the person that even though he knows that person is not going to make a decision for him, he still loves that person, and I, I would imagine, now this is what I surmise as I've studied the Bible, the Bible doesn't say this specifically, but as God is sitting on that throne, Jesus Christ in that great white throne judgment, I would imagine that's going to be the most heartbreaking event in God's existence, and God has existed forever, I mean, it's got to just break the heart of the Lord to see those people condemned because they have refused salvation by grace. And so irresistible grace, well, I look at it in my life and I think, man, all the times we were just talking about this, I think in the discipleship class, all those times I could have died and I didn't. And, And then when finally the gospel was presented to me, it had been presented many times before, but it was as if it was irresistible to me. And that's how we should all feel. But as far as irresistible grace, there are those who will, that God has presented the gospel to them, but they are going to refuse the gospel. God desires that all men, all of mankind will be saved. And he says in John chapter 12, verse 32, and if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Well, first of all, we know all people won't be saved, but that means that there's the opportunity for all people. If I be lifted up, he's talking about the cross. If I am lifted upon the cross, as you see this ultimate expression of love, I will draw all people. So there's the attraction. Now look at you in your unsaved state when somebody shared the gospel with you. There was an attraction and you had to deny it. There, there was God drawing you, but you fought that. And finally, if you're a born-again believer, you surrendered to it. But there are people, you, you know, have, have you ever ministered to somebody and think, man, they're just right there. They're, they're being attracted by, by Christ as you're preaching the gospel and all that he's done, but they refuse it. And if they refuse it to the grave, then God will refuse them. So T-U-L-I and then P, the perseverance of the saints. This one I... I believe, I I believe. Matter of fact, some people say that Pastor Chuck uh, believed contrary to this, but I have never heard a teaching from him that has been contrary to this. Perseverance to the saints means once you're saved, you're in. Once you're born again, you are a child of God and there's nothing that can do that. And the Bible pretty much states that in John chapter 10 verses 28 through 29, and I will give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And so, what we're told in John chapter 3 on the day that you were saved, the day that you became born again, that was the work of the Word of God as somebody shared the gospel with you and the power of the Holy Spirit. And He changed you, regenerated you. If any man's in Christ, He's a new creation. Behold, all things have become new. And so, God saved me through the supernatural power of Him. Now, how could I lose my salvation? Now, I did nothing to gain my salvation. It wasn't by works of righteousness, which I have done, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so since it wasn't a work that I had done, then it was a work that God had done, again, through the power of the Spirit. Now, that being the case, if I am able to lose my salvation, then that means that God would have to undo the salvation and, if you will, throw me out of the family. We don't see God undoing things, maybe undoing creation in the book of Revelation. But other than that, we don't see God undoing a person's salvation. And you see somebody who was maybe walking strongly with the Lord at one time, and then all of a sudden, they're just living this horrible lifestyle. Did that person lose the salvation? I think we need to look at it from the perspective, not so much did they lose their salvation, but were they ever saved? How do you minister to somebody like that? They need to do the elementary things of salvation once more. Supposedly, they made a profession of Christ, but guess what? Everybody who makes a profession of Christ isn't really making a profession of Christ. They're just responding. They're, I've heard it described as they're, they're, they're purchasing fire insurance. See, salvation isn't about not going to hell. Salvation is about going to heaven. And so on the day that I was saved, I wasn't making a decision to not go to hell. I was making a decision to come to Christ. And that's what it's all about. And so perseverance of the saints, I believe once you're in, you're in. And Does that mean that I can go off and do whatever I want? If you start going off and acting towards the flesh, according to the flesh, you're going to be convicted of that. You'll never find peace in that if you're truly born again. And if you do find peace, then you probably were not born again. What is the meaning of Matthew 13:33 number 46 Matthew 13:33 another parable he Jesus spoke to them the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leaven so leaven is usually used to represent not so much sin although it is but the effects of sin that once I start allowing a little bit of sin into a situation or into my life, then all of a sudden, a little bit, well, it's just like leaven. It expands into a lot. Well, it says here, though, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Leaven, again, is an influence. And so, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leaven. And the idea is, is the influence of the gospel. It should come in, it should germinate, and it should grow outside of these doors. When I was an electrician, we built Little Caesars when Little Caesars first started in the uh, the early mid-80s, and I remember I had to do a service call in one of them that was already in operation, and I went and did my thing, whatever it was that I had to do, and I went in the back to throw the stuff away, and the blob was back there. I thought the blob was green, but the blob is actually white because I saw the blob coming out of the trash can. It was all the, the uh, dough that they had thrown away. Well, it had yeast in it, and it grew, and it expanded, and it was huge. And never again could I eat a Little Caesars pizza just because that smell stayed with me, and it was bleh. But the idea is, is that as there's the influence of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit It's not going to be contained in one spot. It's going to grow and it's going to spread. Um, Some people have looked at it from the negative standpoint as well, as sin is allowed into the kingdom of God, because he does talk about things along those lines in Matthew chapter 13. It could also be used to the negative as well. Number 47, will a person be able to commit suicide after the rapture? Kind of laughed at that one at first and thinking, (laughs) what? But you do a little bit of study and we're not going to have time because I do want to touch on the one of the last questions in Revelation 6 12 through 17 and Revelation 9 6 what does it say they wanted to die but they couldn't so my answer to that according to what I see there is is that man can't commit suicide during that time it doesn't seem that he can why because again tribulation it's that time of squeezing What is God doing? He's trying to squeeze out the last bit of believers, allowing these great tribulations to happen so that mankind would look back towards him. Can man commit suicide? Well, maybe he can, but these scriptures insinuate that man wanted to die, but they couldn't. What does 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through uh, 34 mean? Well, I'll read a portion of it. says therefore whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord but let each man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body for this reason many are weak and sick among you and many sleep and sleep means that they've died for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And so, uh, well, let me read verse 32 as well. And when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. And so what was happening there, they were having these agape feasts, or these times of communion, and people were taking precedence over others, taking all the food and whatnot, and it turned into be just a big thing of the flesh. And, and, you know, it it, it seems like the communion meal had gotten to that agape feast, which had gotten just crazy and, and And so what did God do? Well, he's bringing chastening upon people. And when he says some have died because of it, God has allowed people to die because of it. Now, when you see people, Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Spirit and their lives were taken from them. Now, when you see lives taken from them in, you know, uh, Nadab and Abihu, the ones who offered strange fire to, uh, to to the Lord, they were worshiping as the people of the land worshiped idols. It doesn't mean that they were condemned to hell but it does mean that they lost their lives. And so here the church in its infancy, what is God doing? He's given illustrations that people will take up and notice. We have the more sure word of God today. They didn't have the Bible back then. Not like we have it today, Old Testament, but not the, not the New Testament. And so it's very clear in that section of scripture, God was allowing that to happen for the purpose of correction. So when I serve communion today make sure that your heart is right before the Lord. (laughs) We haven't had to haul anybody out of here dead yet. This, This is a good question, verse 49, or number 49. Number 49, what day was the Lord crucified? Well, a case can be made for Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. What we do know is, is that Jesus was raised from the dead on a Sunday. It's the first day of the week. Scriptures are very clear about that. Also, it was prophesied, and the reality was, he was dead for three days, and he had to be in the tomb no later than 6 p.m. on Friday. We know those things as facts. He could have been earlier than 6 p.m. or even a day earlier, but he had to be there at least by 6 p.m. because Saturday is the Sabbath and no work was to be done. And so if he's still on the cross and it's 6 p.m., they had to just leave him upon the cross. But since they took him down and did some initial preparation and put him in the tomb, it had to happen sometime before 6 p.m. on Friday. Now we know that the day of preparation is the day before the Saturday Sabbath. And that's when we are told that the Lord was put into the tomb on the day of preparation. Now, there are other Sabbaths in the Scripture, but the only day that is referred to as the day of preparation where you would go to get your Passover lamb and you would prepare the meal you know, to eat, the one that you would be eating on the Sabbath, you would prepare that on the Friday before the Saturday because no work was allowed to be done on that Saturday or on that Sabbath day. And so Friday, you would get everything all ready, all prepared, let's say all the way up to 5.59 And you would have the table already because you can't do any work. And then at six o'clock, you would sit down and celebrate the Passover meal. And so the day of preparation back in biblical days and in Israel today is always Friday. Really, it's Thursday from six o'clock all the way through to Friday at six o'clock. And then it starts the Saturday Sabbath we are clearly told that Jesus died and was entombed on the day of preparation. Matthew 27, verses 58 through 61, Mark 15, 42 through 46, Luke 23, 54, and John 19, 42. It couldn't have been done on a Thursday because he died at 3 o'clock and then was put into the tomb. And so it had to happen on a Friday and again before 6 o'clock those who hold to a Wednesday, day of the Lord's death, well, for, the argument for, he would, this would allow for three full days and nights of him being in the tomb. Against it, he would then have to be raised from the dead on the fourth day. Against it, another argument, Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before the Lord's death, would need to have been taken place on a Saturday. Well, it can't take place on a Saturday. He couldn't have his triumphal entry because a Saturday is the Sabbath. And so all of those people, that that just wouldn't have happened because they would be celebrating the Sabbath. They would be in violation of Jewish law. Argument for Thursday. Well, Palm Sunday would now be Sunday. And also for Friday would be the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would be a Sabbath. But there's the problem there, and that's usually where the argument is. In Leviticus 23, let me get there. Uh, 23, verses 1 through 7. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, The feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, are my feast. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh or Saturday is a Sabbath of solemn rest, the holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all of your dwellings. So, on the Sabbath, that was the weekly Sabbath, on a Saturday, no work was to be done. That happened every week on a Saturday. But what about the other Sabbaths? Well, verse 4, There are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month is twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread. To the Lord, seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy day of convocation, and you will do no customary work on it. It doesn't mean that you can do no work on it it means you could do no work in which was your occupation and so on those particular sabbaths which friday was probably one of those sabbaths that you could do none of your customary work on it and so some people had said that or friday was a sabbath so you know it fall the argument for a friday death falls apart there but again that doesn't make sense or i mean it doesn't hold water really because although you weren't to work on a Sabbath on a Saturday, you could work on that Sabbath, the first day of unleavened bread, which was a Sabbath. You could do work on that day, just you couldn't go to your job. That was the idea here. Against Thursday, um, it's Thursday nowhere in the scriptures or in Jewish tradition is referred to as the day of preparation. Friday, for Jesus died and on the third day, but he did not necessarily have to spend three whole days in the grave. So Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday morning, he was still in the grave when he came back to life. And then Friday, again, Friday, and I think the thing that just confirms the whole thing, Friday is the day of preparation. So Thursday for a Friday Sabbath would not be the day of preparation because you could still get the meal ready and you could still do that kind of work preparing for the Sabbath. So it seems that Jesus died at three o'clock on Friday, was in the tomb before the start of the Sabbath and of course six o'clock on Friday and he rose on a Sunday. Now the apostles were not told specifically by them dates and times because they didn't care about that. They cared to tell you that he was crucified. They cared to tell you that he rose from the dead. These are huge things. They weren't wanting to get into the little details of the Sabbaths and all of that because they're sick and tired of hearing about all of those things. Uh, Jesus told the Pharisees, because of the, the um, traditions of man, you have rendered the word of God of no effect. And then lastly, number 50, what is the meaning of Proverbs 22, six? Train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Well, concerning the book of Proverbs, it's important to know that the book of Proverbs contains maxims. Maxims are not the same as promises. Maxims are a brief expression of a general truth, principle, or rule of conduct. Important to understand because we know and we've experienced, well, even though we raise up our child in the way that they should go, they still may rebel. Although I work hard, I will not necessarily become rich. And if I act wisely, I will not be guaranteed to live to an old age, although in the book of Proverbs, certain maxims say that we will. Really good people have trouble with their kids, and some ungodly people raise wonderful children. Many hard-working Christians struggle to make ends meet. Amen. Fools become rich, and the godly sometimes die young. And so maxims of this book express general principles of how God runs the world. Train, but my experience, train up your child in the way that he should go, and when he gets old, he will not depart from it. It says, and when he gets old. It doesn't mean when he's an idiot teenager. It doesn't say when he's a foolish 20-some or whatever it might be. It, the idea here is, is that you train up that child because when children, 10, 12, they buy everything that you say and they look to your example. And if you're doing a good job, you'll see that child, man, this child is going to be the greatest kid ever in the kingdom of God. But then all of a sudden they become teenagers. And you who used to be so smart, now all of a sudden have turned a, made a turn for foolishness in their eyes. And so they go through all of that. But what I have seen happen in my own kids' lives, as well as the lives of others, when they get old, when they go through trials, When they go through hardship, when they live out their wisdom that they realize is an actuality, foolishness of youth, they're looking for truth. They're looking for reality. And if those truths, two things, have been presented in the home and lived in the home, they're going to realize that worked with mom and dad. I know that will work with me. When they get old, they will not depart from it. When is it that they're going to get old? I don't know. Maybe after you're dead. Maybe they'll revisit those things after you die. But as far, as as much as depends upon us right now, we need to be remaining faithful to these things for the sake of our children and for the sake of our grandchildren. And so maxims, maxims are general truths that have been presented by God that if we adhere to them, that we will see the blessings of God does it mean that we're going to, these are promises that if I adhere to the word of God, I'm going to become rich. That's a heresy. I'm never going to get sick or I'm going to have these perfect children because they came from imperfection, our children, because we came from imperfection. And so I know how I was as a kid and I know all the dirty, rotten things that I did. And I know my kids done, have done more dirty, rotten things than I even know about, but it pales in comparison to what I know that I did but God still brought me into his kingdom and God seemingly has brought them into the kingdom and now I've seen that they've, they've lived these things and they've seen the fallacy of their ways and I see them training up their children in the way that they should go. perfection, no, not even close to it, but as we follow through in these things, we see the reality of the truths of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Now, what does he mean in remembrance of me? Well, in remembrance, number one, of what he is about to see, or I'm sorry, what they're about to see, and and they're about to see Christ upon the cross, but also remembrance of what they have seen, because it's just important, the fulfillment of scriptures. Jesus is about to go to the cross, and so he's encouraging them, re-examine what you see based upon what you physically see, but also based upon what you've seen in the scriptures. And so in remembrance of me, Isaiah 53 Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground he has no form or comeliness and and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him that means there's just no outward desire of beauty he is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs and we hid as it were our faces from him he was despised and we did not esteem him. So every time they took communion, they would remember that, yeah, there wasn't no, any outward appearance of, of beauty from him that would attract us to him, but it was all about who he was. And he was despised and rejected by a man, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief because he was hung upon the cross. And they would be sitting there and every, all of us, except for John here, we all hid our face. We all forsook him then, just as the scripture said. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Remember when Jesus was upon the cross? He wasn't receiving punishment from mankind. He was receiving punishment from the Father. Why? Because he was receiving punishment for our sins. Christ's punishment, not so much that he died. I mean, that was it and the scourging and all, but that God would take sin upon him but he was wounded or pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And so as we prepare and as we partake of the communion meal, have that be your thought today, that your iniquity, all of your sins, past, present, and future, they were all laid upon him on Mount Calvary and Jesus died, and he took care. He was the propitiation. He was the price paid to appease the anger of God towards mankind, and you were included. You were the one that he died on the cross for. I was the one he died on the cross for. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. As we partake of this meal, let's do it truly, and remembrance of him. Father, again, we just thank you, Lord, for this time, this time of family gathering together around this supper table. Lord, that you would bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and make two lines. Come up, hold on to the elements, and we'll partake together.